Hello, and welcome to another edition of Brussels Sprouts. I'm Andrea Kendall-Taylor. And I'm Jim Townsend. And we're so glad you can join us. With the war in Ukraine now entering its second month, we are seeing few day-to-day changes on the battlefield. Russia's focus appears to be primarily on the south and especially the east of the country, as it looks less and less likely that they will be able to muster sufficient forces to take Kiev. There are some signs that Russia could be changing its goals in Ukraine, for instance, by limiting its aims to the Donbass. Uh, But it's too soon to tell, and it seems more likely that Putin is likely looking to keep all his options open. Meanwhile, there has been limited progress in negotiations. Uh, While President Zelensky has said he is amenable to neutrality for Ukraine, there nonetheless remains a deep political divide when it comes to issues of territorial integrity. Taken together, it seems like we are still likely to see a long, drawn-out conflict, and there's really no end in sight. Uh, To discuss where we are in the arc of this conflict, we're really pleased to have with us today uh, Carl Bilt. Carl, welcome back to Brussels Sprouts. Thanks very much. Nice to be here or in cyberspace. That's right. And although Carl needs very little introduction, um, just I will mention that he is the co-chair of the European Council on Foreign Relations, and he previously served as both prime minister and foreign minister of Sweden. Okay, Carl, um, this is my new favorite first question, which is just to kind of hear guests' thoughts on where we are in the arc of this war, in the arc of this conflict. Kind of how would you describe where we are today? Well, we are obviously more than a month into the conflict. We are not where the Kremlin wanted it to be, obviously. This has gone uh, substantially worse from their point of view. Um, both in terms of Ukrainian resistance and in terms of Western actions. Have they given up? No. I think they are looking at options, how they can pursue their their political objectives supported by military operations. The Ukrainians are in a situation where they rightly or wrongly believe that they can win this particular conflict. And accordingly, I don't think we are in a situation where there is as of yet any real incentive for a political deal. It's it's a war of political strength and military attrition. And uh, that will go on for some time, unclear how much. So you know, there, we had some announcements late last week um, from the Russian armed forces about, you know, that they're that they may be walking back their political aims, that they're increasingly focused on the Donbass region. I mean, I know you just touched on that, but what do you make of that? Do you think that it's, you know, do you think that Russia is uh, actually downsizing its aims? Do you think that Putin is kind of walking back what he could use to declare political victory? Or I guess, you know, my my opinion, again, is that it's still that Russians keeping all options open, that they're now kind of building some political narrative or the base that they could use at some later time if they want a convenient face-saving way out. But my sense is that it's probably too early to say that they're downsizing aims. And I wonder kind of how you see it. Well, that's, uh, that's sorry to say exactly what I was about to say. Um, if, if you listen to uh, Mr. Putin, and you can't do that too often, but sometimes he does speak. And his latest major speech was the big one on March the 18th at this huge uh, sports hall meeting. Uh, there was no sign whatsoever of him retreating from anything. It was a militant, militaristic speech uh, and extremely aggressive in tone. Um, 
on what the military are saying, I think it was an interesting press briefing they gave the other day. It was interesting because the map that they showed uh, was essentially correct. And it might have been their way of saying through a press conference to Mr. Putin, we haven't achieved more than this. And whether they are ready to, I, I think they are, by necessity, they have to downscale the immediate military um, ob objectives because they can't do more. Um, if they could do more, they would do more. Um, and that means that it might be that they concentrate more on the East in order to achieve something. It might be, and I think they will still be aiming to get Mariupol. There's no let up whatsoever in efforts there with all of the horrible humanitarian consequences. I think they would like to, to get Adessa because that would uh, change the entire strategic picture in a dramatic way. But uh, perhaps it is that at the moment with the forces at their disposal, they can only concentrate on the East and keeping the pressure up on Kiev. Uh, but um, their words is one thing. I think it's the deeds that we should concentrate on. I know Jim wants to jump in with a question, but just to reiterate your, your point about kind of Putin's big speech in the soccer stadium. I mean, I think that is a notable development, the way that we see Moscow now mobilizing the public for the war. They obviously hadn't done that before because it was to, supposed to be sharp and sharp. And so that kind of Building that public basis of support, mm -hmm. I think, then gives them the ability to sustain this for a very long time. So, yeah, I think too soon to draw any conclusions about them downsizing their their aims and objectives. But, yeah, Jim, go ahead. Well, uh, thanks, Andrea and Carl. It is great to, to see you again. I know you've just gotten off the plane from Doha as well, so I'm sure you're recovering from that. Uh, but let me let me. Turn the turn the focus uh, to the Nordic countries, uh, and um, you know that certainly for those of us who are deep into the Nordic policy, the past few weeks have been absolutely fascinating. As particularly Finland, uh, but Sweden too has been struggling with this idea over uh, joining NATO. The timing uh, does this make sense? It's been quite a historic moment. Um, just your just your observations from what you've been seeing and the discussions you've been having. Uh, I'm not going to ask, uh, are you are will Sweden and Finland join NATO? But I but I'm interested in just what you feel about the conversations taking place in both capitals um, and what the people are saying in the streets in in, uh, in Helsinki and in Stockholm. Where, where are they coming down on joining? Well, you can look at the opinion polls uh, in as far as we rely on opinion polls. You've had a rather dramatic swing in public opinion in favor of joining. And I think the most, and I think there are majorities in both countries, certainly. I think the most interesting was an opinion poll that came out, I think, a week ago in Sweden. Uh, and you had sort of majority or whatever. Um, but then they divided up on the different political parties and different, uh, different situations. And if you took the situation where Finland joined, you would have a majority of the Social Democrats in Sweden advocating joining. So that's where public opinion is at the moment. I wouldn't say it's a very hard public opinion. It's a public opinion that is, as we all are, shocked by what's happening, that is confused, that is searching for new ways forward, um, and uh, hasn't hardened as of yet. But clearly a very significant swing in public opinion uh, as we speak. Where do you think that's headed? I mean, is it think? do you think that this is kind of going to 
you know, that we're seeing the peak of it now, as you said, given the kind of alarm and concern about what's happening and that this will taper over time? Or do you think that this is really kind of a sea change and has set these countries in a, on a different course? I think it's going to boil down to political leadership. Where does the political leadership of the two countries come down on this particular question? And we've had now different, slightly different processes set in motion in Helsinki and in Stockholm, they are slightly different. Uh, the processes, they are, of course, completely, formally speaking, completely independent of each other. But we are <laughs> countries that are very close to each other. So there has to be some sort of uh, invisible link uh, between the two processes. I would expect them, both of them, to come to a conclusion before the summer, the one way or the other. But I would expect there to be a couple of uh, steps in that particular process that we'll see during the next few months. They might not be identical, but my hope uh, and also belief, by the way, is that we will end up in roughly the same conclusion. I find it extremely difficult, almost inconceivable, that we would end up in different conclusions. One issue that seems interesting, well, there's lots of, of threads to pick up on here, but this issue about kind of the necessity, the urgency, the desirability of negotiations. And you can see some different positions kind of hardening, um, certain, uh, maybe not on a regional basis, maybe it's more on an individual basis, but where some camps are, you know, prioritizing bringing an immediate end to the conflict, wanting to see negotiations move forward at pace in order to get the killing and the destruction to stop. And other camps that kind of view any concessions that Ukraine might make as a, you know, as a defeat, as a loss, as, you know, as President Putin winning. And I wonder, I mean, not, not necessarily your opinion on that, but I don't know if that's right. How would you characterize that discussion in European capitals if you were able to characterize it? I think it's all very tentative uh, so far. Um, most of the focus in political circles or in government circles, to be precise, have been focused on what do you do now, uh, really, in terms of sanctions, in terms of economic implications, in terms of energy issues that are fairly high up on the European political agenda, in terms of weapons deliveries, all of those things. I, when, I, when I listen around, most people are totally overwhelmed by the day-to-day -day issues following from this particular conflict. As concerns conclusions or peace or however you want to phrase it, they're two completely separate things. One is what President Zelensky and uh, President Putin um, are prepared to accept. Uh, what's the kind of deal that would be possible there? And President Zelensky said that he wants that deal to put, be put to a referendum in uh, Ukraine as well. The second, uh, which is related but not necessarily identical, is which are the conditions that the US and the EU, to take those two, or Japan and others, have for lifting the sanctions. And I would say that it's, uh, for me, nearly inconceivable that the sanctions will be lifted until we have a, a total withdrawal of Russian forces from Ukraine. Um, even even with a, and, and I would say not only agree but also done and verified that that withdrawal is done. Um, even a sort of a ceasefire, which by necessity means that the Russian forces are still there, 
would not be enough, in my opinion, to uh, lift any of the sanctions. So, so it's two slightly separate but related processes. You know, as I've been watching the the, the fighting going on, I, I had uh, these uh, flashbacks to the Balkans in a lot of ways. Uh, the the fury in which they're fighting, uh, the uh, the seemingly impossible uh, chances for peace, faltering peace talks. I mean, it reminded me of some of the darkest days of the Balkans. And I'm wondering, um, based on your experience in, in the Balkans back in the 90s and uh, and watching the sides uh, wrestling with one another uh, and, this, and the impossibility as that it seemed at the time, the impossibility for peace. Do you see echoes at all in the fighting now and the in the attempts at two sides talking to one and uh, one another now? Does this does this have any throwback for you? Uh, what you saw in the Balkans? Well, there might be some, but 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 I think there are more differences than than there are similarities. Um, here we are clearly talking about sort of a state-to-state conflict. Uh, I mean, the historical analogy that I find relevant is September 1939, when Hitler launched an unprovoked aggression, full-scale aggression against Poland, with the explicit aim of getting rid of Poland. He didn't like the existence of an independent Polish state. And that's what we are faced in terms of uh, Putin and, and aggression against Ukraine. Uh, the the Balkan Wars, and there was a number of them during an entire decade, really, uh, was the result of a dissolution of a state structure. And within that, you had a significant element of state aggression, but also primarily elements of civil war and uncertainties about political structures. And you had numerous different actors. Um, and, and you didn't have really, if you compare here, here we have a, you can, you would know whether this is the strongest army in the world. It was supposed to be. Anyhow, the Russian army, one of the strongest armies in the world, uh, deploying the vast bulk of its qualified forces uh, in an operation. The operations in, 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 in the Balkans were, by comparison, small operations by fairly small military units by the standards of what we see here. Then they went on for a long time with horrible humanitarian consequences. But for military historians uh, used to look at big battles, uh, the Balkans was uh, far more limited than what we see now. But, but in terms of the, the difficulty of bringing people to the table um, who aren't ready to come to the table, I, I kept thinking in the Balkan days that uh, they really had to fight it out. They really had to exhaust themselves on the battlefield first before they would come close to to talking, and I kept to, for me in terms of looking at uh, Ukraine, it was more of, of a sense of at some point uh, they will be exhausted and they'll have to come to the table. And what point would that exhaustion be for those two sides? You 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 see that kind of dynamic where uh, these two parties um, are going to—they're just not ready yet for talks because there's more fighting to be done. No, I I I, I agree with that. We 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 still have a situation where at least. One side, Ukrainians believe that they can win, rightly or wrongly, but they believe that they can win. Um, Putin knows that he must win. Uh, losing for him means losing, probably big time. Um, so I don't think we are in a situation where either of them feels somewhat the urgency, the, or even you say the necessity 
of really sitting down and do the, the, the painful compromises that might be entailed. In, in the Balkan situation, primarily, also Kosovo, by the way, but primarily the, the Bosnian thing, it was both the exhaustion, as you said, but then uh, it was also the fact that the international community came together. Um, we right. talk a lot about the U.S. involvement and, and, and the Europeans, but it was the, also the Russians. That should not be forgotten. So all of them said together, this is it. This is the political deal you can have. You are exhausted of fighting, but you can't solve it yourself. This is the deal that's there. That factor, of course, isn't here, because here we have a major confrontation between us, however we define us, but the wider West, and a Russia that is in some sort of semi-quarter or whatever alliance with the China, and they are both intending, or at least Putin intends to see this both as a way of reviving a greater Slav Russian empire, but also at upsetting the global order and dethrone the West from the position it had. So it's a much higher stakes, much greater player, and uh, much greater violence. Andrea is being very patient. Thank you, Andrea. But just a third follow-up. At some point, yeah, like you were mentioning in the Balkans, where it took uh, the nations, including Russia, to come in to the exhausted sides and say, you can't do this. We're going to have to help you do it. If, there, if and when that time comes in Ukraine, it's different players, of course, than we had in the Balkans, but will there be a role for a third party of some type, of some makeup, that will have to come into these two exhausted parties and say, we're gonna have to help lead you two sides to some type of conclusion. Is there gonna have to be a third party to come in and, and be the mediator? At the moment, you have a couple of candidates that have been sort of maneuvering. You have the Israelis trying to sort of establish some sort of context. You clearly have the Turks at the moment uh, that are doing it. Uh, I, I'm quite certain that they're sort of a fueled plane on one of the Paris airports. Uh, if 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 there's an opening for President Macron, I know he's going to have a talk with President Putin later today. Um, so there are plenty plenty of candidates that would go in and try to help. But um, the question is when and how, and it's going to be dependent upon sort of the will of. Uh, the Ukrainians and the Russians. What can Putin yeah. accept? How 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 can he really climb down? How much can he climb down? And what can Zelensky? And uh, he's of course um, he's a democratically elected leader. He talks about the referendum. Of course, the voice that he has in that referendum will be fairly important, mildly speaking, with the standing that he now has. But I don't think he can decide anything. He will most take sort of popular opinion in Ukraine into account in a way that I don't think is, uh, in, in a way that doesn't come naturally to Mr. Putin, if I phrase myself like that. Yeah. Um, so President Biden just returned from his trip to Europe. And I wonder, you know, your reflections are and what you're picking up on the European side about how that trip went, how you think the allies are doing um, and you mentioned, you know, a lot of the conversations that you're having are focused on the very immediate what to do on sanctions and energy and weapons. Um, where do you think we're headed now? So I guess two part question. How was the trip? What's the mood? What's the feedback? And where do we think things are headed to next? 
I think the trip or what the trip was part of was really great uh, because what, what we got sort of exactly a month after the start of the war, we got what I call a summit of summits. And I, I'm not quite certain we've ever had that before. We had a NATO summit, we had a G7 summit, we had President Biden be part of the EU summit. Um, you can't get the West more together at the highest level than was done in Brussels on, on, on Thursday. And they came out with sort of predictable strong messages and discussed a couple of further actions. Then it was, of course, impressive to see President Biden in his Warsaw speeches. Um, it was fairly obvious and widely debated that he expressed very strong feelings. Um, he was not there as the, 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 the refined diplomat, but he was there as this sort of extremely upset politician at the situation where he felt that sort of it was not only about the minute interest, but it was about fundamental values. And that he expressed in uh, terms that I think uh, couldn't be mistaken or missed. And I think that was, I mean, there are some more sensitive souls, of course. I think that was uh, essentially good. So you're tiptoeing around the, for God's sakes, Putin must go comment. Um, we heard the French kind of reacted to that. My own view is that it was, yeah, sure, maybe better if he didn't say the quiet part out loud, but he has a tendency to do that. I think the, the main drawback is that it overshadowed what was a very positive trip. But I don't, you know, and other than that, I think it was entirely inconsequential. It didn't add anything that anyone didn't already think, including Putin himself. So that's my own view, but I wonder if there's more churn or more discussion on the Atlantic side. Our media has been consumed with the statements, so, but what does it look like on the European side? Well, there's been a little bit of that in, 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 in the absence of other news, but I think substantially I, I agree with you. Um, both President Biden and other European and European leaders had already called uh, Putin a war criminal. That's fairly strong stuff. And we don't normally want war criminals to be in power, by the way. So the one should follow from the other. Uh, President Biden also called him a butcher, which is a fairly strong language uh, as well. So to say that he shouldn't be in power was, uh, you could even say it's milder than butcher and milder than war criminal. But um, I don't think it changed anything whatsoever uh, in the relationship with uh, the man who was subject to these descriptions. No, I agree. Um, but in terms of next steps, I mean, where do you feel the momentum is? Do you think momentum is building to take steps to cut down on, you know, on oil? And is there energy building on any new sanctions? Kind of where... Where do you see this all headed? Are we kind of getting close to the point where we've done all of the big stuff and now it's just a matter of, you know, implement, you know, uh, sanctions enforcement and tightening the belt and just sustaining the pressure for the long haul? If we're able to really implement what has been decided, if we're able to tighten it, if we're able to be absolutely certain this happens, it's quite a lot. It might well be that we can add other elements to it, but we should understand, and I think we do, that sanctions don't have any immediate impact upon this particular war. Sanctions work medium term and long term, but has virtually no impact, except perhaps a psychological, political, in the short perspective. In the short perspective, what is necessary is to not only have the one and the other weapons delivery and defense material, there needs to be a pipeline of supplies to the Ukrainian forces to make certain that they can continue to 
at the minimum contain um, the Russian forces. Uh, they will not be able to stop them everywhere, I think. We should not forget that Russia is 140 million people with lots of military resources available. Um, but they should be able at least to prevent Russia from achieving anything that Russia can unilaterally see as a success or see as a, a victory. Uh, if that achieved, if that is achieved, um, then there might be the condition for some sort of political settlement. As long as Russia believed that they can, um, by sheer quantity of forces, and, and quantity of forces is something that Russia has available, can just sort of grind Ukraine down, uh, they will continue to do it. And here, our supplies on the military side are, I think, absolutely critical to the entire situation. Yeah, I mean, Russia does, I mean, to your point about how important, they'd have a lot more that they can throw at the war in terms of body and mobilizing reserves. They've got tons of ammunition, yeah. old weaponry, yeah. even though it's not the best stuff. The best stuff has been put out, but there's yeah. a lot more they can throw at this in a, in a long attrition. Mm -hmm. But Jim, over to you. Yep. Um, just a, a quick question about the European Union. You know, the uh, the impact of the, of the of the crisis in the war has certainly pulled uh, NATO together and has given NATO a whole new focus and reason to being. It's kind of back to the future for NATO. But tell me about the EU, um, the impact on the EU in terms of of its future as a um, security provider in, in, in some ways uh, and uh, its ideas about um, strategic autonomy and this type of thing. Um, how has the EU fared in this crisis? Are they? How will they come out uh, from this crisis? More unified and focused, or in, how do you think they're? What's the future going to be based on this coming out of this crisis? Well, I think it'll be more unified. Uh, there, there are going to be some sort of interesting things to be watched, and and Jim, you are sitting in Paris, so I think you should listen particularly carefully there. What's what's the have, have have you heard any? Have you seen any major demonstrations in the streets calling for strategic autonomy lately? I don't know. <laughs> uh, I think it's demonstrated the strategic dependence, good dependence that we have across the Atlantic. And if we get uh, strengthened, revived, perhaps also expanded NATO with new members, who knows? Um, perhaps we could go back to discussion on sort of. Uh, EU as the European European defense dimension and defense policies, which needs to be strengthened as uh, sort of the European pillar inside NATO that can work together with the US, can also work autonomously if that is seen to be necessary now and then. Um, so I think there's a lot of moving parts of, of, of this and it's too early to see where it ends up, but uh, I would I would be attuned to the nuances of discussions in Paris as well. Carl, you were just at the Doha Forum. I'm curious to know kind of what views look like from further afield. Was there, did you pick up on any differences in tone or substance in those dialogues? Well, there is a difference, of course. Um, and one thing you just note that is that while there's a tendency in the US and perhaps to some extent in Europe to see that these values, this is democracy versus autocracy, autocracy or dictatorship or whatever it was, that doesn't really fly uh, with a lot of countries because they say, well, it's horrible what we see in Ukraine, but well, uh, we've seen Afghanistan, we've seen Iraq, we, we, we see wars and we don't consider 
that the West has been that strong on principles before. Um, I think we need to face it more in terms of the fundamental of international law. You simply don't tolerate aggression, irrespective of which regime does it against which regime. Then it has uh, somewhat more resonance. Uh, then I think it was obvious there also that some of the some of the Gulf states are, uh, with exception of Qatar, I think, uh, they are not entirely crystal clear. I mean, I listened to the Saudi foreign minister, and it was difficult to understand what he said about the subject. I think that was entirely deliberate. They are hedging their bets uh, to a very large extent. That was, you know, we talk a lot about how Ukraine has done so remarkably well at controlling the information environment and the narratives coming out. That's in our information ecosystem. But I would assume that Russia is working overtime, maybe with the help of China, on shaping narratives in places like the Middle East. It could be Latin America and Africa, too. But so I wonder, you know, if, if that narrative is different. Are those, are they seeing the war through a different prism than we are? Well, the, the Russians are working, no question about that, but I think they have been amazingly uh, unsuccessful. And uh, for everything that we've been talking about and reading what the Russians have saying about the importance of information war and whatever, I mean, they are losing it. It's uh, big time. Um, what they say, insofar as they say anything, um, they talk about the hypocrisy of the West. You know, essentially, you say, you in the West, uh, you can bomb Belgrade. Uh, you can dismember Serbia. You can invade Iraq. Uh, you can do all of these nasty things. And then when we have the, when we need to go in and help the people from genocide, I mean, to take the sort of brutal version, then, then you, are, you, are, you are screaming. You are hypocrites. And there's an element of audience for that. There's an element of audience for that. That 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 should not be forgotten. Yeah, I mean, you can that's take, such an important note can, to remember. Kind of how the larger community is viewing this and those narratives. Like you're saying, there are some audiences for those narratives. Yeah, you can see particularly I mean, the, 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 the country that is worth watching is, of course, India. India has always been sort of uh, uh, India first in terms of its policies. Uh, and uh, Modi has not said a critical word against the Russians. I mean, he came out in favor of sort of in negotiated solutions and territorial integrity and all of those, those things, but not a critical word um, against Russia. So maybe just a final couple of questions, but just to get back to what this means for Putin domestically. And I mean, we we touched on this a little bit before and you, you remarked you know, that, that Putin knows he must win. What is your sense? I mean, my own opinion is that Putin's baseline kind of odds, the odds of instability have changed fundamentally in the last month for Putin. Before, you know, my assumption was that he would kind of be in, you know, he would remain in power till he died of natural causes. Um, the probability of that happening in my mind has shifted some as this does seem like it has, whether it's kind of this large scale public dissatisfaction, even if we can't see it below the repression all the time. But some notable divisions within the elite, including within the security services. I just wonder how, how you see what this has done to Putin domestically, if you have any view on, on how that might play. Well, too early. Um, there's no question that what 
the Russia that is going to come out of this is going to be more isolated, a weaker, uh, but a more desperate and, and accordingly more dangerous Russia, as long as Putin is there. Uh, as for public opinion, I think he can, short term, he can handle it, television and repression. And uh, we see repression now coming in in a scale that uh, is very different from only months ago. Uh, that can work within within some time frame. But of course, the more authoritarian and repressive a regime becomes, the more brittle it becomes as well. Uh, and I would be fairly certain without knowing that much, and no one knows that much, um, that there is a lot of uncertainty and nervousness in, in what we can call the structures of the Russian state. Uh, I sometimes make the historical remark that we should remember that Russia is the only state that has collapsed twice within a century. It collapsed in 1917, it collapsed in 1989, because simply the state, the structure, the system was not able to cope with the stresses, with the task, with the situation. And collapse was what happened. I'm not saying that is in any way imminent, I don't think so. But if I was asked to grade the probability of it, uh, it would be substantially high, substantially higher now than uh, two months ago. And I have some Russian friends who've come out in the last few weeks or days even that um, are believe that's where, where it's heading. Um, if I could ask, not the last question, that's for Andrea, but uh, just my last question, and that is, um, would you have done anything differently over the past couple of months than uh, what the West has done? Would you have uh, advocated for a different approach in any particular way? And then the second part of the question is, as we look forward, what would you recommend in terms of next steps? Uh, how, would you, how would you drive this ship as, you, as we look forward as well? So looking back and then looking forward. Well, looking back, back I haven't reflected upon that but that much. But clearly, um, uh, it could probably have been better if we had to be even more forward-leaning on both the training activities, the weapons deliveries and things like that to beef up the Ukrainian forces. Some things were done, but in retrospect, I think we can all say that more would not have hurt anyhow. In terms of the politics, the diplomacy of it, I, I, I think that, as I think the sort of uh, the Biden administration looked to be in shambles for a while with Afghanistan, and I don't think AUKUS was the best best uh, exercise in skillful diplomacy ever I've seen ever either. Uh, but I think here they have uh, performed extremely well, uh, both in the the warnings that turned out to be essentially correct, the use of intelligence in order to exposed the Russians in advance, and in terms of then later being instrumented together with Brussels, amazingly good Brussels-Washington coordination, in, in, in building a very strong coalition. So there are far more pluses than uh, minuses in the equation. Going forward, yeah, sustain the policies. I think we, are, we need to sustain our policies. We don't necessarily need to have a new policy every week. Uh, sustain and strengthen the policy line that we have now agreed on until we see some sort, something that breaks, something that changes in a more fundamental way. We are not there yet. So a similar question, just to build on that, I mean, would you 
say that this is going to be a containment 2.0? Is that an appropriate analogy? Kind of how do you, I, I don't, what, what do you think our goals need to be now moving forward? Other, you know, sustain, contain, you know, really constrict and constrain the regime. So is, is containment or constrainment, is that maybe a better word, but I don't, how do you, how do you think about where, what kind of very, in a, in broad terms, where we need to go? Well, we have to find a new word. I, I, I think if you look at sort of Putin, uh, if we talk about Putin, a uh, Putin Russia, post the weapons having gone silent in Ukraine, I think Cold War is uh, much too mild an expression. I don't think it's going to be that cold. Um, I think the temperature is going to be a, a fair bit higher than cold. And it's going to be less stable than was the Cold War. The Cold War wasn't always stable, but uh, nuclear deterrence did stabilize to some extent, has to be said. I think with the nature of the regime and with the nature of the man, as long as he's there, we have to be prepared for more of ongoing containment slash confrontation slash crisis. Do you, maybe this will be my final question. Do you, how do you see that, you know, so long as Putin is there spilling over into the Arctic region? Are you concerned that that, you know, tensions might rise there? Or this one question that we're grappling with in some of our work. And I just wonder kind of how you think about what this might mean for the Arctic region. Difficult to see that it's going to spill over there because I mean, the, the strategic interests that are there, I mean, the, Russia have two strategic interests. First is the strategic nuclear forces and second strike forces. I don't think the West is going to do anything that sort of threatens or endangers that. That would be stupidity, of course. The second thing that is going to be critical for Russia is, of course, the its need to exploit the oil and energy resources up there. The, the, the Yamal and the Vostok, this huge project where they have uh, also Western investors or had Western investors. Will that be sustainable at all? with uh, Western companies leaving and with technology sanctions uh, starting to bite. Uh, That's an issue more in terms of Russia's domestic development, but I think that will have a fairly substantial long-term impact upon uh, Russian economic prospects. But uh, Arctic Council, of course, is frozen, to use that phrase, appropriate when it comes to the Arctic Council. Whether that has much of importance, uh, not quite so. Okay, Jim really has the final question. We've decided this behind the scenes. So this is your, this is truly your final question. So uh, if I if I may, um, I know that you've uh, in the past years have uh, certainly had a bit of contact with uh, uh, Madeline Albright. And I was wondering uh, with her passing, if you have any reflections you want to Give to the uh, the Brussels sprouts audience uh, on your 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 reflections and your thinking on her passing. No, I think of course she was a great personality, and and particularly, uh, I have to say that I came to appreciate her much more after she left the, her office. Um, it might be that I was some would call it by the fact that I was. I was at the time working very close to another fairly prominent American diplomat, Richard Holbrook. And the relationship between Richard Holbrook and Madeleine Albright were not necessarily always of the sort of more golden nature to phrase it in, in those terms. 
but afterwards, Madeleine, with her engagement for democracy, for human rights, the NGO community, uh, with all sorts of people, uh, whatever their background, whatever their sort of positions, was really impressive. And she was always appreciated. She always spoke her mind. She was very strong in her values and was accordingly. And that's difficult to be when you are Secretary of State, when you have other interests as well. She was in that capacity truly inspirational for a lot of people. And that's another form of power than state power. And perhaps she was, or I would say she was far more important in, in that particular respect. Oh, that's wonderful. That's interesting. Yeah. Thank you, Carl. Thanks for doing this. Um, and um, we hope to have you back at some future date again to Brussels Spouts, but we appreciate you taking the time to do this. Yep. Yeah, thank you so See much. You. All the best. Stay in touch. Thanks. Thank you for listening to another episode of Brussels Sprouts brought to you by the Transatlantic Security Team at the Center for a New American Security. You can find all of our previous episodes wherever you get your podcasts. And please remember to rate and review Brussels Sprouts so that new listeners are able to find the show.